Welcome to the Dharma Spring. So before we dive into the territory of the koan that met us in meditation and kept us company and we with it, just want to talk a little bit about the tradition. Um, not really the practice, I mean, like the basic things I covered, that's really the basic practice of it. But um, the tradition, where they, why koans exist, why, why is it a tradition? Because um, oftentimes what I hear from others who have read about them, uh, met them other ways, some people will say they're unsolvable riddles. Or they're meant to thwart your intellect. Yeah? Um, they're not really riddles. Solvable or unsolvable. But they can be made into riddles. I've noticed that some, sometimes the mind can turn into a riddle format and give a response that's, aha, I got it. But the koan's like, yeah, no. <laughs> um, and then the thwarting of the intellect, that may happen but that's not really what's the purpose of them. And I think that particularly comes up for our culture because the intellect is such a prized uh, aspect of ourselves, but it's also quite a vexing one. So we either hear it as, it's going to take away that thing that I value, or please take away this thing that vexes me so much, my intellectual mind that gets in the way. Um, So that may get thwarted, but that's, again, not the purpose and it's also not trying to get rid of our intellect, this, this practice of koans. It's really, you might say, I might, I will say, those aspects of ourselves that have come forth more fully than others and dominate our way of being, which may tend to be an intellectual way for our culture, or us individually, is through the practice of koans, invited to come back to the array of the fullness of who I am. So I'm not trying to get rid of my intellect, I just want it to stand on equal ground with everything else that I have of value and ways of meeting things emotionally, imagine, you know, with imagination, things like that. So not try, trying to thwart it, just trying to say, come back here, there's a whole bunch of us. You don't need to lead the pack all the time. Yeah, that kind of thing. And then, you know, koans have been around for over a millennia, 1400 years plus that the tradition's been around and things have happened and we tend to individually and culturally co-opt a practice, make it our own, make it into something. So you may read things about them that talk about them being held up in a certain way, which is true and not true because they're constantly evolving and moving. So I think talking about where they originated if you've read about koans before or have an idea of what they are, this might bring in a different perspective to accompany that or maybe undo those ideas of what it's about. Because they originated from a time in China, during a time in China, where there was tremendous devastation uh, due to war, famine, and disease. Two-thirds of the population died. So imagine in your world, 
two-thirds of everything you knew, all the people you knew, died. Very desperate time. Uh, an immediacy to living and trying to figure out how to do it. And Buddhist practices that were present in that day, people would go to a monastery, go to see a teacher for spiritual guidance. And the Zen tradition, the Chan tradition, as it's called in China, was already around and had its own approach to such matters. But something really um, became unique in this particular time. And the story, there's like these two great teachers of that time, uh, great ancestor Ma and Shito, who were people that, teachers that people often went to. And what was interesting about their responses, which was just coming from their practice, I don't think it was a thought out, this is how to approach this, this is just the immediacy of their response, was they wouldn't allow anybody to rest in a place of not getting it, or to be in a place where you don't have everything you need. Yeah? Constantly handing back to them their awakening. You, you have the capacity to, to meet this and respond to it and get through. So there's a one exchange with Shito that's kind of emblematic of this that I bring up often, where somebody came to him and said, what should I do? Yeah? So traveled all this way to see this great teacher. What should I do? Shito says, why are you asking me? Yeah. <laughs> so first, what? <laughs> and the person says, "Well, where else am I supposed to go, or where, where else am I supposed to get it, what it is I'm looking for?" And Shito says, "Are you sure you've lost it?" Yeah. Now you can meet that on a <clears throat> advice level, kind of a that intellectual level of what's the message here. But again, consider the times that this is happening. You have come to this teacher, two-thirds of your life and the people you've known and everything is, is gone and devastated. And you go to this teacher looking for refuge and salvation, perhaps. And that's the response you get. That's the last one in particular. As you look at all of this stuff that has happened to your world and been gone, taken away from existence, are you sure you've lost anything? That's pretty, whoa, what? Because I can look out and say, yes, I think I have. But then the question is, are you sure? Are you sure you've lost what you need? Is really the, the response there. So I do think, you know, salvation and refuge was offered to these people, but not in the usual ways of reach out here, do this to get refuge from your life. It's more like that very life you're living this very existence, what's happening right now, that's where your salvation and refuge is, in your very life. Again and again, handing that over to people. So this wasn't koan practice. These were the stories that became the koans later, because <coughs> the exchanges like that were noted and passed down. It could have been maybe the individual who met a teacher or even one of their companions and had an exchange that was really liberating and transforming. 
And they felt, whoa. Yeah. They wrote it down. They wanted to remember it, like we do. I want to remember this so I don't lose it. You know, that kind of stuff. Or maybe somebody else witnessed the exchange or heard, noticed a transformation in their friend and asked, well, what happened? And they said, well, I talked to so-and-so and this happened. So they wrote down the story. And the idea was, let's preserve these stories because something important seems to have happened. Yeah. And I'd, over time, trying to meet these stories in the usual way of what's the message, what's the value here, you couldn't really find anything because they're, they're weird, some of these, like the one I said earlier. That's a little strange. How can you get a message and what's the moral? How do you get it out of there? So, again, meeting it in that usual way of what does this have to offer me maybe didn't quite work. But people started to notice something else happened. And what that something else is, is that somehow, to put it in language that hopefully is helpful, it's like in that original exchange between the individuals, or even one person just saying something, there was a meeting and an experiencing of awakening. One or more of the people in the exchange experienced awakening. And somehow that awakening experience got encoded into the story. And it's mysterious. We don't know how that happened. But what has shown that to be so is that over the centuries, as we take up these stories, individuals far removed from those days and ages and far different from those people experience the exact same awakening. But in your own particular way. Yeah? So at once it's universal because that awakening is just the awakening of what is. The awakening of existence everywhere all the time. And it's also particular. The way you meet it, the way that it's expressed in your life, not a cookie cutter approach. It's how does this universal awakening, how is it manifesting in your life right now? And it's really important when we take up these stories to bring it to our own lives. Um, Today's is a little easier to do that because it's like somebody's speaking to you. So the invitation is, where is this in your life? It gets harder when you're looking at a story between someone else or someone else's. And you can think, well, I wonder what happened for him or her. Or, well, he seemed to be saying this and she said that. and Looking at it and trying to figure out the puzzle. When, if you enter the story or let it become your own, you say, well, how is this for me? How is it for me if I'm asking that question? And what is the question? What does it really mean to me? You know. And that response, where is that in my life? Where do I find that it jibes and resonates with my experience? Yeah. So because of these stories proving to be useful and helping with a deeper connection with something, they've survived for all these uh, centuries. They continue to. <clears throat> They're a living tradition, as I say, um, which means some of the older ones that were more applicable to cultures and times before ours kind of drop away because they no longer make sense in our day and age. And there's new ones that arise you know, from our times that are still being added because some exchange between some people here and now turns out to have some kind of universal and particular helpfulness to others. So it goes on and on and it grows. And at the bottom of, of it, you know, I think 
koan, the koan practice is about transformation and freedom. The transformation that is your very life and the freedom that is your very life. And that's proved to be helpful and useful and relevant for a long time for many people. So we keep meeting it, meeting these koans, meeting the tradition to find out, well, what's the transformation and freedom here as we meet it, yeah? And that urgency and immediacy from the times from which they came brought about a certain and particular way of relating to things and to meeting things, a spirit. So it's not really about the outward practice, it's more about that spirit of meeting things. And so in that spirit, the koans grew beyond these individual stories. Somebody might have taken up a phrase from a Buddhist sutra and met it in that same spirit of how is this mine, how is this me? And that got invited into the koan curriculum. And so there's thousands of koans that exist out there because, I mean, there's folk songs, there's poetry, there's jokes in the koan realm <laughs> because they have a spirit of offering something when, when met in that particular spirit of immediacy, urgency, intimacy with my life, yeah, with each other. That's the other, yeah. So they're not even limited to weird stories. It might be a lovely line from a poem. We even have, in my particular lineage, we brought the Western values into the koan, or the the Western uh, contributions, like Pablo Neruda. We have a line from Pablo Neruda in our koan collection. I've found the Beatles showing up as a response to some koans and whatnot. So it's good to keep those gates open, eyes and ears open, to see what arises. So, so all that being said, this one that we met earlier, keeping company with still, and which will continue to happen after today, this phrase may keep company with you. And you may do so as directly with it as you wish and just keep noticing what happens. But um, this is uh, from Lin Ji, a teacher in the ninth century. So within 100 years or so of those other few teachers, um, well-known. If you've heard of Rinzai Zen, that's a Japanese way of saying Lin Ji. Lin Ji is just a guy. But such an important and influential teacher that an entire school of Zen was had his name attached to it. And he said many things, and this is one of the things he said, speaking to the assembly, was there is a true person of no rank, constantly coming in and out through the gates of your face. (laughs) So to refresh us, nourish that territory a little bit before we dive deeper into your sharings and discussion, just um, <coughs> the things that pop up for me that may, you know, if, if things drifted away, maybe they'll call back something that popped up for you. But So true person, you know, hmm, what's my idea? Of, what does that mean? What's a true person? Yeah. And then I notice, is it like, what is my true person? Or do I picture it as somebody else out there that's not me? So, okay, a true person. 
But then it comes to no rank. It's like, well, true person seems to be ranking something. It's a true person, not a false one. That seems to be a rank. But now it says of no rank. Huh, what's that? How can it be a true person of no rank? And what is it to be a rankless person? What is it to have no rank? Yeah? So I can notice those two. My rankings, my ideas, meeting the, non, the non-ranking, the undoing of that. Notice how those two may exist together. Yeah? And I come into this constantly going or coming in and out. So dynamic, active, lively. It's always happening, yeah, according to this phrase. This true person of no rank is constantly coming in and out. So never not here. But it's different than saying always here, isn't it? Like a fi- it's not a fixed position, is it? It doesn't say there's a true person of no rank present in everything you do. It's more of this true person of no rank is constantly coming and going, constantly moving. So how does that meet my ideas of me trying to become a certain someone or being a certain way or getting to that certain point, trying to maybe arrive at a fixed position? Then I meet this phrase that says, this true person that I may be looking for is constantly moving in and out of everything that's happening. Yeah. So I, I can meet that and go, oh, what's that about? And also, well, how do I recognize this? How is it happening in my life? Or what are the comings in and outs, <laughs> coming in, comings in and out of my life that maybe I've been ignoring and neglecting and seeing as the things that are in the way? What if I focus on them and wonder about, is that it? Might that be the actual territory? <laughs> Those things that seem to be obstacles, the things I'm trying to push my way beyond so I can get to that true person. Hmm, interesting, yeah? Then there's this, through the gates of your face, your face gates, what's that? (laughs) You know, a gate being a passageway, things come in, things go out, but also a a border, a boundary, a welcome, a hey, beware of dog. Um, <laughs> whatever's on your gate, yeah. But the gates of your face, that boundary where you meet life and it meets you, where something from you comes out through the gate into life, and something from life comes to meet you, passes through the gate, and enters. Yeah. What is it to have a face gate? And I could be curious about, well, what does my face gate actually look like? Is it wide open? Is it locked? Is the moving part of the gate in good order, or is it kind of falling, you know, falling apart over time? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? No, no. Just endlessly be curious about this, and notice, well, where in my life do I experience any aspect of this? Go on. And the last thing is that if you have Sometimes, if you've heard about koans before, you might have this idea that there is a correct answer. And that can be intimidating. And that seems more like the intellectual approach. 
there's a correct answer I need to get to. So that means I need to discard all these incorrect answers and get to the right one. Well, that may be your response to notice that. Oh, they, that's good. But every response, anything that you are about to say and share here is valid. Because that's what arose for you. Yeah? You might notice what things arose for you that you pushed to the side already because they didn't seem worthy. And maybe you think you have nothing to say. Well, you might reach back to that thing that you pushed to the side and bring it up and just say, well, this is what came up. Not knowing what it means or doesn't mean for you, but being curious. And not knowing what it may do for others, how it may help them. So there is no correct answer. There's just the exploration and responding back and forth until something feels complete and whole. And it's that, that experience of awakening settles, settles in and um, it recognizes you, you recognize it. Something like that, perhaps. Maybe that's putting too many words on it. Which is a long way, maybe, of saying, well, in addition to everything's welcome, it doesn't have to be a big, aha! It could be a very dull, huh? You know, because when that awakening meets you on a particular level, for somebody it's going to be whoa, and for somebody else maybe oh, whoa! I I didn't know that. I've kind of known it all along, but I didn't know I knew it. The other person's like, well, duh. I've known that all along. Like, okay, that's fun. Doesn't have to be bright and shiny. Doesn't have to be life changing. Just is what it is your particular response. And it also, that particular response right now and the responses today may not and likely are not the end of the story. So we keep going and keep going. Except for me. I'm going to stop. But I'll just say again, um, there's a true person of no rank constantly coming in and out through the gates of your face. Thank you for listening. For more about Andrew Palmer and his teachings, please visit bowandroar.com and look for him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.